After many cycles of cleansing and struggle, my teacher, Chogyal Namkai Norbu Rinpoche, suddenly appeared. I saw his face and felt his presence strongly. Then, without anything being said, he introduced me to the nature of mind. Instantly, and without transition of any kind, my mind opened into pure, boundless clarity. Absolutely without content, it was both the content and the context of all thoughts and sensations. When my mind opened to itself, I was stunned. This was different from the ecstatic clarity of the Dharmakaya. This was clarity in the body, absolutely contentless. It was the container of all experience. As the condition persisted, my shock turned to amazement and then to giddy joy. I felt various thoughts and sensations arise and disappear into spacious clarity, not affecting it in the least. My mind began to move faster and to range more broadly and the spacious clarity was not affected. This was the fundamental condition of my existence, the essence of my being. I was so grateful, tears of joy, tears of gratitude, such blessing to discover this inside my very existence, like finding diamonds inside the pocket of old jeans. Hi, my name's Carrie. The reading you just heard was an excerpt from the book LSD and the Mind of the Universe by Christopher M. Bosch, professor emeritus in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Youngstown State University in Ohio. The quote is his transcription of a portion of a high-dose LSD session he took in the late 90s which was a part of a greater project where he set out to explore and map the terrain of the psychedelic experience. A deep dive where he went on 73 high-dose LSD journeys over 20 years. He is also a practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism. Me, I'm a student in the Master of Pastoral Studies program at Emmanuel College. Manuel College is a multi-faith theology school at the University of Toronto. I'm in the Buddhist stream and I've practiced Vipassana meditation for over 15 years and studied the Dharma from a modern, mostly Theravadan Buddhist perspective. I'm also into psychedelics. Before going further today, I want to give a note of caution. Psychedelics are powerful tools, and this podcast is not here to promote anyone's individual use of psychedelics. In Canada, where I'm recording this from, most psychedelics are still scheduled substances, just as they are in many jurisdictions of the world. Though I want to note that decriminalization movements are happening and places like Denver, Colorado and Oakland, California have decriminalized certain psychedelics. 
Beyond the legality, however, caution should also be taken as psychedelics can produce challenging and difficult experiences. These are not always problematic, but following certain guidelines of preparation and having the right support is, in my opinion, totally necessary. In rare but significant circumstances, psychedelics can induce acute mental illness. Of course, as we'll explore ahead, these tools are also being used in therapeutic and traditional contexts for healing. So, why Buddhism and psychedelics? Perhaps it will be helpful to give a little personal context. In my 20s, that would be about 20 years ago, I went through a psychospiritual and mental health crisis. It took me a long time to find my way through, and both Buddhist practice and psychedelics were important tools on this healing and ultimately spiritual journey. In fact, these practices are still part of my path, but I have had and still have a lot of questions about how Buddhism and psychedelics meet. Are these practices congruent? Do they lead to the same realizations and insights, or are they different spiritual paths? And how about the fifth precept of Buddhism that urges practitioners to abstain from intoxication? From a Buddhist perspective, what exactly is intoxication? Do psychedelics intoxicate, or are the states they induce something different? Also, who needs to follow this precept? Lay people who've taken the five basic Buddhist precepts, or just monastics? And perhaps different Buddhist traditions have varied perspectives on what entails intoxication. And lastly, how have others combined Buddhism and psychedelics? Because I'm certainly not the first in the West to do so. And as we'll hear a bit later in this podcast, possibly not the first in more traditional forms of Buddhism either. These are personally important questions, but now that talk of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapies are making their way to the popular media, with covers on the likes of Newsweek magazine and articles in Scientific American, as well as that some psychedelics have been deemed breakthrough therapies by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, these are questions that Buddhist practitioners, whether they be Buddhist psychotherapists or health professionals, Buddhists who might be offered psychedelic therapies for their own healing, or Buddhist religious leaders who might have their students or Sangha members exploring psychedelic practices for their own healing or spiritual benefit, are questions they might need to consider. Another reason to consider the connection of Buddhism and psychedelics is that new research has been published over the last few years looking at combining meditation and psychedelics in a therapeutic context. This is important because it's bringing the contact of the contemplative aspect of Buddhism and psychedelics into new arenas, and we'll look at some studies more closely in a moment. 
But for those that are new to these areas, there are growing research bodies on both psychedelics and meditation independently. Research over the past 30 years shows many significant healing benefits from meditation and mindfulness, including helping to relieve stress, possibly treat heart disease, lower blood pressure, reduce chronic pain, and improve sleep, in addition to the potential benefits on mental health. And following a half-century of prohibition, the last 20 years has seen a resurgence of research on the possible healing benefits from the therapeutic use of psychedelics. For anyone new to this topic, psychedelics include substances such as LSD, MDMA, DMT, and ketamine, as well as plant medicines sacred to various indigenous cultures, such as psilocybin-containing mushrooms, ayahuasca, San Pedro, and peyote. And I want to leave a note here as well that depending on one's worldview and way of approaching psychedelics, they can be seen as drugs, sacred medicines, sacraments, substances, or tools. Early research in the 1950s and 1960s showed therapeutic potential of psychedelics for alcoholism and mental health disorders, but were outlawed in the West even for research purposes in the late 1960s and early 1970s following the counterculture movements of the 60s. This current second wave of research into the therapeutic use of psychedelics, sometimes called the psychedelic renaissance, is demonstrating that there may be statistically significant and lasting improvements in treatment outcomes for illnesses such as PTSD, major depressive disorder, addictions, and eating disorders. These are encouraging results for both psychedelics and meditation benefits independently, but how about combining the two practices for healing benefit? As mentioned a bit earlier, some new research has begun to explore just this. A hypothesis and theory paper out of the University of Oxford in the UK from 2021 titled Psychedelics, Meditation, and Self-Consciousness states this in its introduction. There is intriguing evidence of overlap between the phenomenology and neurophysiology of meditation practice and psychedelic states. In particular, Many contemplative traditions explicitly aim at dissolving the sense of self by eliciting altered states of consciousness through meditation, while classical psychedelics are known to produce significant disruptions of self-consciousness, a phenomenon known as drug-induced ego-dissolution. This article goes on to review and discuss the existing evidence in the research literature for the ways that meditation and psychedelics share similarities and differences in how they induce selfless states. They begin by qualifying that self-consciousness, the sense that we are an individual identity or an I, is in fact multidimensional and includes somatosensory, agentive, narrative, and social components. 
The authors then examine the ways that different styles of meditation and different psychedelics disrupt certain dimensions of self-consciousness and not other dimensions in their own unique patterns, basing this on neuroimaging studies as well as qualitative research of people's experiences. As an example, in the narrative dimension, which is the type of self-consciousness that is self-referential or egoic, such as our beliefs and stories about ourself, our autobiographical memory of our life experiences, and even the ways our mind wanders into future planning. What will I wear to the party? What should I say to so-and-so? In this particular dimension, it's seen that both psychedelics and meditation alter one's experience of narrative self-consciousness. From the neurophysiological perspective, looking at scans of the human brain and nervous system, the similarities are observed particularly in an area of the brain called the default mode network, or the DMN an area which is associated with intrinsic awareness or our internal mental state. In brain scans of people meditating and in scans of those under the influence of various psychedelics, alteration in the functions of the DMN are observed, particularly through deactivation of this brain region, suggesting that by turning off this part of the brain, it also quiets self-referential thinking or memory retrieval. From the subjective experience level, people after use of psychedelics when questioned about their experiences of ego dissolution said things like, I forgot that I was a male, a human, a being on earth, all gone, just infinite sensations and visions. Or... I no longer felt human. I didn't remember what a human was. The paper goes on to explore similarities and differences in the other domains of self-consciousness. Overall, what we can draw from this paper in simplistic terms is that both meditation and psychedelics share some phenomenological similarities and also stimulate change in our brains and nervous systems and that they do this in both similar and different ways. Another recent study out of the University of Zurich in Switzerland from 2019, titled Characterization and Prediction of Acute and Sustained Response to Psychedelic Psilocybin in a Mindfulness Group Retreat, also looked at the intersections of meditation and psychedelics, this time in an experimental way. In this double-blinded study, the researchers gave either a placebo or psilocybin to 39 meditators on the fourth day of a five-day silent mindfulness retreat led by a Zen Buddhist meditation teacher. Results of this study showed some interesting things. During the retreat, it was observed that psilocybin didn't limit people's capacity to stay engaged in the mindfulness practices. And in individuals who received psilocybin, there was an overall deepening of states of mindfulness during the drug effects relative to the placebo group. Some participants in both groups had mystical-type experiences, though it was more frequent in the psilocybin group. 
And it was also observed that those that received psilocybin had greater post-retreat levels of mindfulness and larger positive changes in psychosocial functioning at a four-month follow-up. This is a small study and big conclusions can't be drawn from it, but looking at these two articles together, it can be considered that there may be similarities in the ways that psychedelics and meditation affect our brains and experience, and though more research would be needed, may have synergistic effects. The scientific lens for combining Buddhism and psychedelics is a new one, but they have a long history together in the West. Eric Davis, an American writer and scholar, recently stated at the Religion and Psychedelics Conference by Chakruna, the Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicines, that Western Buddhism would not exist as it is without psychedelics. In 1996, the Buddhist magazine Tricycle sent a survey out to its readers asking about their psychedelic use. Out of more than 1,400 responses, 89% said they practiced Buddhism and 83% said that they had used psychedelics, with 40% of respondents stating that their psychedelic use had been the catalyst for their interest in Buddhism. For reference, this data was found in the book Altered States, Buddhism, and Psychedelic Spirituality in America. The author of this book, Douglas Osto, highlights that there is frequently an acceptability for psychedelics to inspire one's entry to Buddhism, something that Eric Davis calls the Paisley Gate. But there is less acceptability when people choose to continue practicing Buddhism while maintaining use of psychedelics. There exists the perception that once psychedelics wake a person up to spiritual realities, psychedelics are no longer necessary on their spiritual path. In a survey that Douglas Osto performed, however, which he explicitly states is not from a random sample, so to be cautious with the results, found that out of nearly 200 respondents, 33.3% of the practicing Buddhists in this sample continued to use psychedelics. This suggests that some people continue to value the experiences with psychedelics within their Buddhist spiritual life. Douglas Osto devotes a chapter of his book to just this. He is explicit that it's mostly American convert Buddhists who are practitioners of both Buddhism and psychedelic spirituality. 
I want to take a moment and acknowledge here that it's important to distinguish that the histories of Asian Buddhism in America are very different but equally important and are often neglected in the dominant conversation of convert or white American Buddhism. What I mentioned prior and what follows from the book doesn't capture what the beliefs and views on psychedelics are from that large and diverse community. In the chapter on keeping the door open, Convert Buddhists, Osto shares excerpts of responses to the survey he conducted, as well as parts of follow-up interviews. He highlights that each person has a unique story as to how they have chosen their spiritual path, but that some themes do emerge. The first is that psychedelics can be used as mind-training tools and can aid in developing insight. One respondent, Shane, who has a serious Buddhist practice, who ordained as a monk temporarily on a four-month retreat in Burma and sits a two-month retreat annually with his sangha, and is also a teacher with an insight meditation organization, says this, My use of psychedelics and the way I've seen my teachers and friends use them is to open the channels on the mind, heart, that are connected to subtle, ecstatic, and energetic experience. I feel supported by the plant medicines to work beyond my normal range of experiences and to be able to use these experiences to see more clearly in the subtle realms. A second theme that Osto highlights in his Keeping the Doors Open chapter is that psychedelics can act as teachers themselves or spiritual medicines. A respondent, Ryan, is ordained as a Soto Zen Buddhist priest in the Chino Roshi lineage and is also an active member of the Native American church as a ceremonial leader. He says of his ceremonial use of peyote, It helps to keep my heart open. It helps me to appreciate, respect, and nurture my relationships, as opposed to growing in some relationship with the absolute that doesn't benefit anybody except for me. The last theme that Osto identifies is that the keeping the psychedelic door open Buddhists generally believe that using psychedelics in the right setting, usually a highly ritualized one, and holding the right intentions, such as healing, compassion, or wisdom, are essential for their spiritual use. Tom, who was interviewed by Osto, has been a serious practitioner of insight meditation and also spent 12 years practicing in the Kagyu Tibetan tradition, says this, I think using psychedelics can't help but be spiritual if you've got a daily practice, or even if you don't have a daily practice but have done a fair bit of meditation or retreat work. But part of what does make it spiritual is the frame. You know, so doing a prayer to the four directions and having an intention, I mean, that is really important. But what about the fifth precept? China Galland, in her essay titled A Trip Not Taken, in the seminal book on Buddhism and psychedelics titled Zig Zag Zen from 2002, 
struggled to make a decision around an offer she received to go into the Amazon jungle to drink ayahuasca. She says she was tempted. Her challenge in deciding was dual. Galland had been in recovery and sober for 14 years and stated that though ayahuasca is not addictive, it was clearly outside the box I had drawn around sobriety. The second aspect, though, was that in 1989, she had taken vows with His Holiness the Dalai Lama at a Kala Chakra initiation. He urged the initiates to take only the vows they were prepared to keep. She describes that she was delighted by the view of non-intoxication as it undergirded her practice of sobriety and also brought her into an ancient fellowship of the vow. In her reflections, she highlights that she knew teachers who interpreted the vow of not using intoxicants as to not abuse intoxicants, and that many Buddhists who had taken these vows did imbibe without a second thought. She also reflects on other teachers, particularly Thich Nhat Hanh, with whom she had also taken vows, and that his interpretation of the vow was quite strict. From his view, intoxicants meant alcohol and drugs, including psychedelics. In the end, Gallen decided not to go. She says that, given the vows she had taken and her years of sobriety, to choose ayahuasca was a contradiction in terms. The decision that Gallen made was one that seemed highly reflected upon and personal. Which brings up a question for me. Are the Buddhist vows for each practitioner to wrestle with and to interpret what keeping the vow means to them? This is a big question, and I don't intend to answer that in this podcast, but rather to put it on the shelf for future reflection. But it does lead me to a second question of, what does the Buddha in the sutras say about this vow? It's perhaps there that we might glean some increased clarity. Alexander Duncan examines this nicely in an article titled, Did the Buddha Prohibit the Consumption of Drugs? In a translation of the Pali Canon by Maurice Walsh in Sutra 17 of the Digha Nikaya, the Mahasudasana Sutra, the fifth precept is outlined as, Do not drink strong drink. And in Sutra 32 of the Digha Nikaya, the Atanatya Sutra, Walsh translates this as, Refrain from strong drink and sloth-producing drugs. But in the translation by Rhys Davis, only the words intemperance and intoxicating liquors are used. No reference to drugs. Duncan goes on to break down the Pali words of this vow himself. I don't speak Pali, so I won't attempt to speak the phrase, but rather will share the translations of each word portion part by part. And please forgive my pronunciation of these segments. In Pali, the fifth vow begins with the word sura, which is an intoxicating or distilled liquor or brewage. Then on to maraya, a fermented liquor. Then maja, liquor or intoxicant. Japa, greed, desire, lust. Pa, a preposition meaning leading towards or intensification. 
pamada, negligence or carelessness. Mada, pride, intoxication, or sexual excess. Yoga, in this case meaning effort. Ko, surely. Gapati, a commoner or householder. Puta, a child. Boga, possession, wealth, enjoyment. And lastly, apayamuka, the cause of ruin. Duncan states that drugs are not alluded to in these words. He suggests that this is what the meaning of the passage is. Truly, addiction to drink, which leads to sin, will be the downfall of the householder and his heirs. He further states in this analysis that the same principle may or may not apply to drugs, but that is not what the Buddha says. The essential objection appears to be the loss of self-control that results from imbibing alcohol. And also that the Buddha does, of course, permit the consumption of medicinal drugs and even allows the rules of the Vinaya to be bent or broken in the service of treating illness or preserving health. This brings us back to the therapeutic use of psychedelic drugs for their healing benefit. If the Buddha suggested to abstain from intoxicants to avoid excess and loss of self-control or carelessness that leads to ruin for the householder, how do we square more prohibitive Buddhist views of psychedelics with meditation retreat participants receiving psilocybin and having an increase in mindfulness and greater positive psychosocial benefits four months after the fact compared to the placebo group? or with those that have received MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and found relief from their chronic and severe PTSD. These results don't indicate ruin and rather seem to be in service of treating illness or preserving health. Psychedelic research is still young, and the ways it can be beneficial for whom and when need to be examined more fully. And also, psychedelics can surely be abused and misused, but this comes back to intention of use. If one is dedicated to generating healing or cultivating compassion, many find these drugs, tools, or medicines beneficial and meaningful. And some, including myself, find benefit in combining Buddhism and psychedelic spirituality. I have one last thing I'd like to share, and I won't go into too much detail here, but at the beginning of the podcast, I suggested there might be some traditional forms of Buddhism that have a relationship to psychedelics. This is a provocative statement, and I have only one source that I am pulling this from, but it is a piece of the Buddhism and psychedelics puzzle worth at least having a look at. Michael Crowley, scholar of Sanskrit and Tibetan, a student of Lama Chime Tulku Rinpoche, and himself ordained a Lama in 1989, wrote a book titled Secret Drugs of Buddhism, Psychedelic Sacraments and the Origins of the Vajrayana. 
In this book, Crowley examines historical, textual, and artifact evidence alongside an examination of the regional botanical psychoactive plants that may have comprised both the ancient Vedic Soma and Amrita. Amrita is translated as immortality and was an elixir. Particularly, he examines how psychedelic mushrooms might be at the root of these sacred elixirs and ultimately lead to the formation of the tantric Vajrayana Buddhist tradition. I'll end with an excerpt from the book. For a little context, Crowley states that Sanskrit had no direct way of saying mushroom, but there were ways that people might indirectly allude to them. He says that one said, Chatra or Atapatra, the meaning of both words being parasol or umbrella. Crowley writes, Armed with this alternative meaning of Atapatra, stories about parasols take on new significance. There is a legend that the king of the Chthonic serpent spirits, the Nagaraja, presented the Buddha with a jewel-encrusted umbrella. It is gold with a sapphire handle and its edges are studded with jewels, including diamonds, which shine like the sun. The jewels give off a nectar which can quench the thirst of all sentient beings. This nectar is neither bee food nor a thick pulpy fruit juice. It is, of course, Amrita. And despite the claims about the thirst of all sentient beings, we should not think that it is merely something needed on a hot day. Thirst is Buddhist technical jargon. It is shorthand for that craving for one's circumstances to be otherwise that lies at the root of all suffering. To truly satisfy this thirst is to achieve nirvana. Intriguingly, this blue-handled gift of the Naga King is adorned with jewels that drip a psychoactive liquid. This sounds contrary to the purpose of an umbrella, so why has nobody commented on this incongruous oddity? The answer lies largely in the fact that prior to Gordon Wasson's discoveries in Oaxaca in the late 1950s, the existence of blue-stemmed psychedelic mushrooms remained utterly unsuspected. Although several species of psilocybin mushrooms have been found in India, the interest shown by scholars of religion has so far been negligible. It now is apparent that the passage should be understood thus. A mushroom with a gold-colored cap, a blue-staining stem, and remnants of a coordinate veil attached to outer edge of cap is a source of the psychedelic sacrament.